Hello, it's Jason Louv. It is a brand new episode of Ultra Culture, and guess what? The fateful moment is finally here. Long promised. The Mega Course. Mega Course is here. If you've been following my classes and, and I think podcast also for the last year, probably more than a year, you have heard me saying that there is a massive new course coming that will be a huge, comprehensive, galactic level, <laughs> if you will, uh, mega training in the very best of Western and esoteric, or excuse me, Western and Eastern magic, mysticism, esotericism, consciousness change techniques, everything that you need to determine your true purpose in life, what you truly want to do with this life, and all the resources you need, both spiritually and logistically, materially, to begin following that. I mean, what else could you possibly want? Meaning in life and a jetpack to get there? That's what I'm offering. It's going to be an eight-week training. It is going to be online, and it will be created in such a way that if you have a busy schedule, which you do because freaking everyone does now, uh, it will be constructed in such a way that you can work it into even a very busy working schedule or a, a schedule that is uh, dominated by other responsibilities. So in that eight weeks, we're going to go from zero to 60, and it is going to be the quintessence of the entire stack of teachings that uh, I've been presenting, and it's going to take them to a much, much higher and, and, and frankly, more practical level, right? So I've been working on this mega course for, it seems like, years now uh, in, in preparing exactly what the best way to do it will be. And uh, I keep telling people, it's coming, it's coming. And people are like, dude, when is the mega course coming? You keep talking about it. I'm like, it's coming, it's coming. I'm working as hard as I can. I don't sleep. I haven't slept for 10 years. I, you know, uh, and people are like, okay, but seriously, when, it's, when is it coming? Uh, it's coming Black Friday. Yep, set release date. So what does this mean? Well, first of all, it means get ready, keep an eye out. There will be a brief, very brief pre-sale on Black Friday. Uh, where it will be available for cheaper, where you will get a Black Friday discount if you sign up then. I believe it's only going to be a 24-hour offer. Uh, and then the mega course will start in January uh, for full price for those who did not get the Black Friday offer. But if you are one of the, the lucky few that jumps on it, you know, on this holiest of American days, the shopping day, the, the you know, or the, the, the most the most sacred of American holidays outside of Amer outside of Amazon Prime Day, Black Friday, uh, it will be less expensive for you. Um, in addition, as again, <laughs> I have been saying for way too long now, the price structure of Magic.me is changing. I know I've been promising this for like a year. What can I say? It's like literally every single waking moment of my life is goes into this and it turns out to be harder to do this when you're one person than you might think. <laughs> so uh, I wish I could be as snappy as, um, you know, a major corporation. But, you know, luckily I've started to hire people and things are actually happening much faster now, thankfully, right? Um, so that's actually happening now. The new pricing will, I'm not going to announce the new pricing just yet, but it will be more expensive. Um... There will be multiple pricing options depending on how much of Magic.me you want, you know, which parts of it you are most interested in. There will, um, I'm definitely going to get rid of the lifetime plan uh, and very likely the yearly plan. Those are going to go. It's going to be monthly only. And those options are going to go away uh, on Black Friday, uh, prior to Black Friday, actually. So Black Friday, on Black Friday, uh, the new pricing tiers will be rolled out the mega course will also be rolled out and the mega course will be discounted at that time. So what that means is if you want the best possible deal, here's what you should do. If you want the best possible deal on magic.me courses, you should definitely pick up a subscription now before Black Friday, um, at any time before Black Friday, and you will be grandfathered in at that price ad infinitum as long as you stay subscribed. So that includes lifetime means you will be a lifetime student for the current price forever. You will never be charged more. That's it um, for that level of service. Um, and the monthly and yearly fees, as long as you stay subscribed going forward, will always stay at that rate. 
I know I was, <laughs> I know I've been, I've made this offer multiple times and I'm, I'm I, what can I say other than like, I, I just have to be real. It's like, fuck, this is a lot of fucking work. And I know it's like fucking lame. It's like, dude, you told us that months ago. I'm like, I know. I know it's embarrassing. Um, it's not a sales tactic. It's literally because I'm, I'm, I'm crawling towards the goal, like, uh, just like along the floor, inching forward, like an inch at a time here, but it's going faster now that I'm getting over myself and hiring. Let's put it that way. You know, it's way too easy for me to delude myself for too long of a time that I could do everything myself, which is not true. Um, luckily I've gotten over that and things are happening quickly now. So it's for real. So Thanksgiving, basically the day before Black Friday is the last day. The date is set. It's solid. It's the last day to get the current prices. And um, if you're in at the current prices, you will be grandfathered in going forward. Those prices will not include the current subscription student will not include the mega course. The mega course is a whole different thing. It's like practically its own new school. It's massively built out. There's going to be tons of stuff in it. This is like a training. It's like a, it's like a quarter of college. It's not just, oh, I watched a three-hour course. It's a training program of massive dimensions that will allow students to make massive progress, but will also be quite demanding of them in terms of seriousness of practice in which exercises will be graded. It's a training program. So that's separate from the current magic.me prices. So if you want the best possible deal, grab one of the subscription packages for magic.me and you will have access to all of the current offerings, including the new Buddhism course, by the way, which people love, uh, which is beautifully rendered and people really, really love. It includes the Buddhism course. Um, you will have access to that forever and then grab the Black Friday deal for the mega course. If you're interested in the mega course on Black Friday, it will be significantly discounted. It will be a very nice discount for Black Friday for those who jump on that offer. And then you're, you've got clear sailing. If you don't jump on the offers because um, you wanted to spend all your money on uh, sock deals for your family uh, for Christmas or uh, you wanted to save the money because you know that you will be disappointed with your Christmas presents if you celebrate Christmas and that you're going to spend the money all on yourself on gadgets to fill the void and make yourself feel better after Christmas, go right ahead. Although may I suggest that that, that indulgent uh, self-expenditure is on magic.me courses. Regardless of what you choose to do, it will all those things will obviously still be available going forward, but they will be at a higher price tier because they're awesome. And I've been putting out everything that I have, like heart, blood, and soul, sweat, and tears into these courses, which are of a level of, I say without ego, of a level of quality of information and usefulness, which is beyond anything else that is available on the current, in the current marketplace. Um, and I've been charging way too little for them because I'm, you know, people have to have a hard time selling themselves. We know this, you know, that's what it comes down to. Right. So I have been urged by many, 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 many students to charge more. They feel bad for me. They feel like I'm just, you know, basically selling myself short, which I am. So, uh, prices are changing. And with that, as the prices are changing, that gives me more leeway to make better and better courses and, and make these just as good as I possibly can and offer new programs and live events and different trainings and more books and more documentary type things like I just did with the Buddhism course. It's just like, you know, it just opens up the horizon for what is possible and what you get as a student, right? So everybody wins. We're going to have an amazing 2020. It is going to be the best year for magic.me yet. I finally got on point with video and audio production. Podcasts will be coming. And most importantly, that class, because the registration will be closed once it's filled up, the people who are lucky enough to be in that mega course, that training, uh, which will be the first It'll be eight weeks and it'll probably start the second week of January just to give people time to catch up from the New Year's. Um, those people are going to get everything I got like that. We're going to go deep, deep, deep on that one. And I mean it when I say that the point of that course is to uncover your purpose in life and then give you the tools to fulfill it. That's the point, right? If only this had existed when I was a young man, I wouldn't have frittered away my life. But now it exists, and 
you are the beneficiary. It's going to be a phenomenal class. I'm sure there's going to be a phenomenal group of students and all the stops are getting pulled out on this one. It is going to be a life-changing course. It's going to be a life-changing event for everybody in it, including me, I'm sure. Okay, so you have until Black Friday to get the current Magic.me prices and then stay tuned on Black Friday for the offer on the mega course, which again will have limited seats available and is going to be, well, you'll have to be there to see. All right, the topic of today's show, can you read the writing on the walls of eternity? So, thesis. The universe is ordered, it makes natural sense, it is benevolent, and you have a place in this natural order, perfectly fitted to you, your work to do in this lifetime, that is exactly the right task at the right time for the right person. Okay, counter thesis. Our culture, whatever that is, that vast, vague thing that we refer to just as modern times or American culture or world culture is set up to tell you exactly the opposite. It is in a moment of total turbulence, chaos, breakdown, nihilism, despair, and absolute bankruptcy of anything approaching a positive vision or plan for the future. Fair enough. Okay. I think the second one is at least probably a pretty uncontroversial statement. I think pretty much everybody, regardless of their background or their political leanings, would agree that we are in a moment of total chaos. Whether that's actually the case is a completely different question. We, of course, now live in a time that is less violent than any other time in human history, yet which we perceive to be in... Uh, almost, uh, you know, post Blade Runner savagery, you know, like, um, because we're connected to each other constantly at all times with electronic devices, the second something happens anywhere in the world, we hear it, our phone goes off anytime, anywhere, anything goes wrong, we know about it. So while the world has become more peaceful overall, although that's not a given, Our nervous system has extended to cover the entire planet, and it is raw. Maybe that's what happens when you grow new nerves. They're very sensitive at first. So why am I addressing this topic? Last week, there was another mass shooting in Los Angeles, uh, another school shooting. Uh, In this case, a young man for no apparent reason whatsoever, unless it's come out by the time you listen to this, walked into his high school, pulled a Colt 45 out of his backpack, which apparently had belonged to his grandfather, which is not a quote-unquote assault weapon or even a rifle. It's just a handgun and a hundred-year-old handgun at that. And started blasting and killed and wounded multiple people. Why? Nobody knows. Just because. I think that the mass shooting is... One of the defining uh, events of our of our time period, unfortunately, um, and for so many reasons, it is an act of utter not just hatred but nihilism and submission to the negative and entropic forces of the universe in a in a bad way. Uh, It is a complete submission of one's humanity. And we've been living in an era for the last 20 years, um, increasingly defined and terrorized by this event. We live now in a time where parents uh, and normal people, anyone unfortunately lives in the reality that anyone at any time can just start blasting and there's basically nothing anyone can do about it. People make calls for gun control. Um, Okay, Uh, a lot of these I feel to be fairly uneducated on the topic. Um, Also, you know, as I've been told by uh, police officers, actually, there you would more easily count grains of sand on the beach than you would recall the number of guns in America. There are more guns in America than than people. And 
Some of the worst mass shootings happen in California, the most restrictive gun law state in the country. And it's not an American problem. So every time one of these things happen, we see news pundits talking about, uh, oh, you know, the effect of Trump or the, you know, how awful, you know, America is. But beyond even that, it's not even just an American problem. You know, mass shootings have been occurring all over Europe. One recently occurred in New Zealand. Some of them are motivated ideologically by ultranationalism. Uh, others are motivated by Islamic terrorism. Others are just random. So what are we to make of this? It's really easy, particularly for somebody like me who's a journalist and knows how the game works, to write some half-baked op-ed piece or, or make some half, half-baked commentary. What is wrong with this country? Why have we gone down the tubes? Um, but we're now at a point where not only does it seem that there are no answers, but nobody even has a clear diagnosis of what's going on. And that to me suggests that what we're looking at is a much, much deeper issue. We're looking at a crisis of meaning uh, that goes far deeper than, you know, oh, you know, violent video games or gun control or you know, religious people will say, well, it's the lack of family values and it's the lack of religion in schools. Well, I might half agree with that. Absolutely, the family has disintegrated and absolutely, uh, and unfortunately, there are no guiding moral or ethical principles in the lives of young people at all. Uh, really, I mean, you know, what do you have? You know, people, you know, <laughs> you know, racist people on Fortnite and YouTube, like that's what you get if you're, <laughs> if you're a Zoomer, unfortunately, in terms of your guiding peer group. But that's only, you know, part of the issue. And certainly I don't think that's something that's going to be solved with prayer in schools or something like that, because that too is just a patch. The issue, the core issue is the human need for meaning, the human need for connection, and the human need to matter. And those are not things that are served by anything for the most part, in our modern world. We're told in school, and certainly in, if you get to higher education, you know, higher education, basically, the stock and trade of the modern academy is to inculcate people with the ideology that nothing matters, that everything is socially constructed, that arbitrary to some extent, and that everything is a kind of... Um, process the, the process of finding truth and not even truth because that's now a dirty word uh, but that the process of knowledge is kind of like a arch sarcastic uh, very clever process of disassembling the building blocks of meaning disassembling the semiotics of language or of the social construction of society I liken this very much to the splitting of the atom in a sense of the moment of the atomic bomb explosion, the, the collapsing of, or, or the splitting of the atom, unleashing a horror on the earth, un, un, an unprecedented horror that no one had ever, not only had ever seen, but had not even been able to conceptualize outside of apocalyptic religious writing. We live in a deconstructive age, an age that seems to be concerned with the unraveling and erosion, not only of something so symbolic as the atom, but also of meaning, of the human soul, and of nature. And to think that all of those things are unconnected would simply be naive. This all, I believe, is part of one larger process, the disassembly and unraveling of the human spirit itself. Manly P. Hall, who to some extent is, is a real inspiration for me, wrote a book in the 19... 20s, I think, called the, the Secret Teachings of All Ages. A lot of you probably know it. It's the most famous book on Western esoterics ever written. It was a massive compendium encyclopedia of, well, just that, the secret teachings of all ages, of the religious teachings and esoteric teachings of all the world's religions and secret societies and all that great stuff that we all love, drawing out the core wisdom of each of them. It's not a practical book. Uh, you know, there are no yoga exercises recommended in it or, or trance exercises or anything like that. It's just the philosophy, 
Manley Hall didn't teach anything practical because he believed that the real path of esotericism was that of the philosopher or of natural philosophy, which in his mind meant fitting your individual life to the true and eternal concepts of the universe. And I could not disagree with that at all. He dedicates his book. He says it all really in the dedication to the book. This is in many ways, the, the antidote to our current world. Here, I'm just going to read the dedication. It's just a few words. This book is dedicated to the rational soul of the world. The rational soul of the world. Now, when have you, when have you heard something like that recently or ever? Since the 1940s, I would say since World War II, the guardians of knowledge and of academic truth and therefore filtering down from there the media and our general outlook of life has done everything it can to get away from the idea of objective truth or the idea that there are rules or laws or any structure whatsoever to not only the universe but our lives. Now, that is extremely political this was basically done after the end of World War II because of the horrors, not just of what was seen in World War II, but you know, prior to that, World War I. World War I was a, a vast challenge to the prior worldview, uh, certainly of Europe, that everything could be ordered, everything could be understood scientifically, everything could be mechanized, everything could be perfected, which was an ongoing process since the Enlightenment. World War I, for many people, as symbolized by Picasso's Guernica painting most, most ferociously, was evidence that that was not true. That in fact, not only was the world a process of chaos and bloodshed and slaughter and murder and madness, but that perhaps the impulse to order, to mechanize, and to understand was in fact responsible for what at that time was the worst war anyone had ever seen. World War I was a process of nearly everyone in Europe, the working class, massacring each other with new technology like machine guns, uh, or refined machine guns, actually the Colt 1911 pistol that was just used in that recent mass shooting, mustard gas, trench warfare, and horrors that beggared the mind that had never been seen before. Even the civil, American Civil War could not, come, could not come close. And this was a war that was conducted by people who did not want to fight each other for fairly obscure nationalistic imperialist reasons for the reason of the great empires basically fighting over the spoils now that they had conquered the world and had nowhere else to, no other colonies to, to claim, and many other reasons. But this was a war where the soldiers, often on both sides, English, German, or whoever, would uh, celebrate Christmas together along the trenches you know, they didn't want to kill each other. They would cease fire and all party together and then go back to killing each other when they were sitting in those trenches for years at a time sometimes down among the dead and decaying bodies of people that had once been their friends or relatives. That unimaginable horror shook the foundation of Western faith and the Western faith in reason to a level that it has never recovered from. It was no longer possible for people to have the blind faith in progress that they had once had because people had begun to say, well, if the result of scientific and technological progress is people running blindly into machine guns and this type of the mechanization of warfare, why? <laughs> of course, World War II drove the point home any, even further. People did not quickly recover and have still not recovered. And I greatly argue we none of us have recovered from the horrors of Nagasaki, Hiroshima, Auschwitz. And so it would make perfect sense that in reconstructing Europe and reconstructing civilization after the worst war that the human race has ever known, 
in which tens of millions of people died awfully in mechanized and technologically inhuman ways, such as the mechanization of death in the concentration camps or the inhuman, impersonal mechanization of mass death in the droppings, completely unnecessary droppings of the atomic bombs. For the intellectuals of that time, in the 1950s and the 1960s, it would make perfect sense to come to the conclusion that faith or simply true belief, the true believer, as Eric Hoffer put it, to, to truly 100% believe in something is the route to fascism and therefore the route to Auschwitz. And it's a reasonable observation to make. And that this could never again happen. And even more so, that were it to happen again, if people were to truly believe in something so much that they were willing to go to those lengths of destruction to advance that belief, that the world would not survive it. That there would not simply be a repeat of World War II, but that the world would be destroyed in a, conflict, in, in a nuclear exchange. This is a reasonable conclusion to come to, that therefore, not only must the basis of all knowledge be reconfigured, but that our approach to existence must in a way be um, eroded, that it must be defanged, that it must be prevented from asserting itself. And so consequently, since that time, we've had, we've certainly had the countercultural revolutions of the 1960s, but we had the rise of post-structuralism in academic thought. And because of that, we now arrive at our current moment where essentially what people are taught is that nothing is real, nothing is matter, nothing matters, everything is socially constructed, there are no rules to life, everything is up for grabs, there is no good and evil, there is no such thing as religious truth. There is only a kind of um, vast miasma of semiotics and counter-semiotics that approach the event horizon of absolute entropy, Karanzan, as we might call it in the magical tradition. Hmm. Of course, this extended not just uh, in the academic world, but also into, you know, it had its reflection in the, whatever you want to call it, the spiritual world, the new age world which, of course, has its own trends and follows the broader intellectual trends of the culture, even if people would like to pretend otherwise. An example, a very good example, would be Terence McKenna, the, the archetypal hippie, psychedelic uh, Pied Piper of the 1990s, who always reminds me of the, uh, hippie, the hippie teacher in Beavis and Butthead, who was able to convince people that the end of history uh, you know, lay, in a sense, beyond the edge of the total breakdown of the mind in the psychedelic experience, the archaic revival that, you know, the, the, the future lied in beyond the edge of chaos, a very popular idea in the 1990s that actually defined quite a lot of my early life. The chaos itself could be a kind of ideal, that nothing is true and everything is permitted, itself was a kind of ideal. And that in fact, that were we to get out beyond the total edge of chaos represented by perhaps the dual effect of the birth of the internet and the, the far edges of the DMT experience, an idea that the, uh, the broader culture has caught up with now thanks to the Joe Rogan podcast, that beyond this was the new horizon that once as people had sought to voyage to new parts of the world and colonize new parts of the world to find or new frontiers. Now the new frontier lay beyond chaos and the breakdown of the mind itself. Well, in a sense, <laughs> uh, McKenna there was saying nothing different from Francis Fukuyama, the U.S. State Department uh, financed philosopher who very, very famously made the statement that in the, the early 1990s that we were in the end of history, that uh, the end of the Cold War and the fall of the Soviet Union marked the end of history itself and that U.S. liberal democracy had, you know, neoliberalism had permanently won and that now was only, you know, the world was now to be kind of a vast flatland of consumer experience 
and introversion and self-discovery and refinement of essentially as Bush one called it the new world order. Quite amusing that Terrence McKenna, the supposed countercultural figure, was saying the exact same thing as the U.S. State Department in his own way. But, and this is the butt of our times, <laughs> um, this clearly was not true. Because what we've seen in the last 20 years, I would say, is first the misery and helplessness and listlessness of moder of modernity you know of whatever you want to call it ultra modernity uh, the meaninglessness of life and how fundamentally unhappy people are with li with a, living a life that is defined simply by consumerism and choice and not by struggle and that if there is struggle it is largely an economic struggle which is certainly very real the struggle to live the struggle to feed your family uh, which is still easier now for most people in the world than it has been. But not a struggle for meaning, not a struggle for an ideal. That is the great taboo of our times. Because of that, what we've seen, I would argue, since the fall of the Cold War, is the, in one sense, the economic growth vastly of the West, but it's a growth on credit and a growth on promises made, uh, checks written against the income of future generations, and growth based on unreplenishable environmental resources, but which looks very good on paper and looks very good uh, on the stock market, and certainly has looked phenomenal during the Trump administration for the value of stock, if not the lives of individual people working for those companies. There's been a kind of vast rampant economic growth and growth of information technology and virtual realities. I don't just mean VR itself, but virtual realities, meaning we have an infinite array of virtual experiences available to us, movies, TV, YouTube, video games, on and on and on that are becoming increasingly indistinguishable from real life and real life itself in the capitalist West or, or certainly in America is basically defined as one set of consumer choices in relation to those virtual realities. You know, I'm a Star Wars fan, you know, um, you know, I'm a gamer, whatever it happens to be, or I'm not a gamer, or I like this type of music, and so on and so forth. I don't need to belabor that point. It should be self-evident. But that in the midst of all this economic growth, that because real ideals and real meaning outside, are basically taboo, are basically forbidden, including, uh, you know, even though we supposedly have freedom of religion, uh, including in a real way, religious belief. And that likely because of this, modern individuals are often, their lives are defined solely by relation to economics and the spectacle, as Gideborg would put it, but they're basically defined uh, purely in relation to economic forces and that whether it has that applies across the board, depending no, no matter where you are on the economic spectrum, whether you're, you know, uh, you know Charlie Kirk, or, you know, like the most like fervent kind of like neocon free market uh, Republican, or the most fervent Bernie Sanders socialist, your life is defined by not higher ideals, not the quest for truth not any type of divine ordering of society or sense of what is true, but, but purely by economics and that your life is defined sheerly by your relation to labor and capital. And I don't mean that in a Marxist sense. I mean that in an across the board sense, you know, wherever one falls on the economic spectrum of, you know, free market capitalism, communism, these are ways of viewing the world that proceed from and arrive at soul economics, which is a profound failure of the human soul, because life is not about economics. It's about higher ideals and truth, and the quest to ground those higher ideals and truths into the human life, which is the quest of mysticism, which is the quest of true religions, true spirituality, 
regardless of the economic or social position of the people of the person who undertakes that or the people you know or the culture that undertakes that so the fact that our political struggles in the modern era are based solely around one's relation to capital um simply shows you how far our age has fallen so that's a broad philosophical point to make but to be more simple uh, down to earth i would say that certainly in the last 20 years not only have people been uh, profoundly miserable because they're leading you know meaningless lives essentially uh, defined only by consumerism or the or opposition to it but that in addition i would you know very clearly argue and i don't think it requires much of an argument because it's self-evident that we've been seeing the slow collapse and erosion of our own societies within our own lifetimes uh, the, the parallels to draw with the fall of the roman empire and its inward collapse into self-serving introversion decadence uh, the drug experience you know they didn't have as good of drugs back then but still um you know everything's symbolized by nero and the vomitoriums and all of this caligula while barbarian tribes including barbarian tribes i descend from basically eroded the empire from without and uh, destroyed it uh, at its un unguarded borders uh, those those parallels are too obvious to, to harp on but i would also argue that what we've seen is that the how vulnerable the society is not to people with superior technology because there are no people with superior technology not to people with uh, more wealth because there are none not to people with better social organization and ability to mobilize force or you know force physical or economic because there are none but to people who actually believe something that is the unguarded space in our culture we don't truly believe anything not even the most uh, fervent supposed christian right-winger really believes what they're saying usually i mean does ted cruz really believe any you know really believe anything or is it just for political convenience donald trump obviously not right donald trump is like the perfect uh, archetype of a modern individual defined only by image and social media combat and that's about it right the perfect man of our times the 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 perfect symbol of america as it actually is donald trump of course is is the leader we deserve perhaps <laughs> because he is us i don't mean that to i'm not saying that in support of donald trump at all i'm just saying if you wanted like a a political caricature uh, the ultimate political caricature of america as it is and as it is seen by the rest of the world you would be very hard pressed to find a better one than donald trump he is us <laughs> you know in the idiocracy sense Muhammad said faith can move mountains and well just look around all demographic and sociological data projections from you know very reliable places like the Pew Institute Brookings Institution and many others very clearly states that by the end of this century Islam will be the dominant religion on the planet um, and that in a sense the most likely future for humanity at this point is kind of a globally islamized world that to me represents uh, without offering comment on islam which has many positive and negative aspects that to me simply represents a, a collapse and failure of western society to do anything uh, that is not simply you know engaged in the material world uh, to do anything except develop new technology and manipulate the market in new and clever ways to give more of an illusion of value to shareholders i mean what else do we really do outside of export force around the world and meaningless uh, soul eroding pop culture jordan peterson recently wrote on the kind of coattails of the of the zeitgeist to global fame simply by offering people a view of the world that they hadn't been exposed to for a long time certainly since the rise of post-structuralism which is there is truth and there is an essential nature to the universe and that it matters and that it most importantly that it can be reflected into one's life 
and must be. That's true. Of course, as post-structuralism has rightly been pointing out for a long time, um, you know, true faith is also the, you know, or the belief in truly true things, essential truths, is also the road to being willing to kill for those essential truths. And for that reason, essentialism has been blackballed from, from, from the discourse. It also turns out that the counter is true, which is that the refusal or the blackballing of truth from dialogue or the concept that there may be truth and that it may be re realizable, the blackballing of essentialism from history also leads to the practical effect of an unguarded society, of an eroding society, of a society in which people are very unhappy. Because I would like to observe that, that for nearly everyone, structure not only is a source of happiness, but is essential for life. I really believe that there is really only one choice or observation about life that can be made. And that is whether the universe is friendly or unfriendly, whether it has order, benevolent order, or if it's just chaos. And where one falls on that, what decision one makes about that will determine whether your life is deeply satisfying or not, uh, whether you are happy or not, not in a superficial way of, oh, my desires are satisfied or, oh, life is easy or, or, you know, I have even more streaming channels on demand, but even the hardest, most pain-filled existence can be a life of meaning and purpose. And with purpose, you know, as Viktor Frankl very famously observed, you know, with purpose, with a sense of meaning, even political imprisonment, torture, even these things can be redeemed, uh, not the act, but one's reaction to it, that with a why, if one knows the why, they can suffer almost anything and come out on the other end. And this is not just philosophical, but literally the human system will give up and people die when they don't have a why. When they don't have a meaning, when they don't have a purpose, they die at the physical level. Ask any doctor. And when they do, they can survive things that supposedly no one should be able to survive. It's that fundamental, not just to philosophy, but to life, to you know, our organism is biologically true. So because of that, as can be quite darkly observed throughout history, people will choose order even if it is destructive and violent, because they far prefer a sense of order, even if it is not in their best interests, to meaninglessness, to chaos. I mean, look at America now, or any other obvious examples. So to bring this back full circle, school shootings, ultimate acts of meaninglessness. How do you get to a place in your life where that is the only act that you feel is available to you, the only way for you to get significance, the only way for you to get, get a sense of meaning and, and, and a sense of power. It is the, perhaps the ultimate failure of a human being, yet people do it. It's now every three days. And I have no reason to believe it won't happen more than that going forward. Every three days, there is a mass shooting in America. How did we get here? It's a complicated topic. We can't not talk about mental illness. Guns obviously play a role in it. But since these mass shootings also occur in places where guns are illegal, and there in many places have been mass attacks not involving guns, where bombs are employed or famously in Paris, or famously in Europe, where driving trucks through crowds uh, was used as a tactic to kill many, many people, or the Boston bombings, where people simply use pressure cookers. The implement of destruction in many ways seems to be a side issue. It's certainly an issue, but certainly not the root. The root is that we live in a time of universal disintegration a storm of entropy, like the nothing in the never-ending story, maybe. 
Uh, we live in a time where people are lonelier than ever before. They are disconnected. Even two generations ago, people lived with extended families. They had large families. Now people live um, atomized in, you know, either alone or in with one person or with maybe one or two children. Um, by and large, uh, and they, they live, their social experiences lived online through the internet, which follows them everywhere they go, through their phone. They do not have the most fundamental need of human beings, which is other human beings, despite the fact that we are more connected than ever before. And I don't want to drift into cliche here because you've heard all this before, but sometimes cliches are cliches and people keep repeating them because they're the important things to realize. When I traveled in Nepal, in the early 2000s, I met some of the happiest people I'd ever met in my life. People with no guile, people with no uh, front, with, that were not two-faced, right? Who were just simply present, loving. And these are some of the poorest people in the world. Uh, you know, up in the Himalayas, I, I, when I was up in the Himalayas looking for shamans to train under, I stayed with with families where it was, you know, a family of seven in basically a mud hut, a straw hut up in the mountains with nothing, nothing. And they, for me, they were so happy to see me and they brought out their nicest silverware, their nicest silver, <laughs> the fine china, which for them was a paper plate and their only plastic utensils. Otherwise they used their hands, right? Which is common throughout India and uh, Nepal across social classes. Happy people. Happy people. Nothing. You know, Nepal and Haiti are the poorest countries in the world. Nothing. And I came back to America and it's like a graveyard here. People dwelling in these multi-million dollar houses with all of the gadgets and electronic devices and cars and movies and phones and pornography and drugs and you know anything else they want and empty inside all the external wealth in the world and utter poverty internally utter poverty no sense of connection to other beings no sense that their lives matter more than just as moving a few numbers on spreadsheets or bank statements no overarching religion in most cases. No sense of contribution. A deep sense of perhaps being part of the problem, being in a sense parasitical on the world, which I don't believe, but unfortunately is a belief that many people have internalized, particularly on the left end of the spectrum. Or on the right end of the spectrum, the sense that, that their life uh, is, is defined by the free market, whatever that means. It has no meaning. Finely upkept graveyards in which families dwell at opposite ends of the house, lost in each of their own virtual worlds, their own computer, their own phone barely stopping to wake up enough to acknowledge each other's existence, even if they've been married for 30 years, or even if they are father and son, mother and daughter, brother and sister, and so on. That's poverty. It's no surprise that we are the biggest drug consumers in the world, and that the American need for cocaine and other drugs to temporarily give a sense of meaning and fulfillment, even for if it's for seven minutes, is, is at the heart of, you know, and heroin. A sense of being back in the womb is at the heart of much of the violence in the world. You know, cocaine, for those who have not experienced it, of course I haven't, um, Cocaine gives people the sense that for about seven minutes, they're in until, or until they do their next line, they are the center of the universe and that they matter. And they're really important and that what they say matters, which is why people can't fucking shut up when they're on it. And it's why people love it in LA because everyone here wants to be a movie star and it's kind of sad. And 
they get that for about seven minutes per line of cocaine. It gives them what they do not have and eats their brain and their soul and their empathy in the process, <laughs> not to mention their bank account. Heroin, of course, gives people the sense that for a brief period of time, a longer period of time, they're back in the womb, drifting in a, a, a sea of oblivion in which everything's fine, even if they're, you know, even if they're, uh, you know, on the street, you know, with gangrenous, you know, festering sores, everything's fine. Alcohol, obviously, I don't, I don't, I don't need to keep harping on this point. Um, I would loathe to start sounding like Nancy Reagan, but emptiness, unfulfillment, this is a spiritual problem. And it's not one that can be solved by going to church and donating to the collection plate and, and, and so on and so forth. And uh, while, con you know, Christian conservatives would argue that much of what we're seeing is a, the result of the loss of the church and the loss of Christian values, and I would agree to some point up to the point that the loss of meaning and the loss of spirituality is critical, a critical problem. Um, let's not let the, you know, let's not let, you know, certainly... Uh, you know, American megachurches and things like that off the hook or the, the, the church industry in America, the televangelists and the, you know, the Ralph Reeds of the world, um, the, the modern Christian megachurch experience, the Joel Osteens and all that are just as, just as crass and empty as, you know, HBO. It's all of a kind. So where does this leave us as earnest students of spirituality and esotericism in a real way, not in a mass marketed way, not in a new age way, not in a, oh, just think happy thoughts way. You know, true esotericism, true spirituality is the quest for meaning, the quest for truth. And by God, you think that's easy? Well, obviously you don't because you're listening to this, but that is not, people want spirituality to be a pat on the shoulder and an infantile, uh, you know, oh, it, like a bandit. Oh, everything will be fine. Everything will turn out fine. Just put a put a kind of a a soft emotional bandaid on your experience, and it'll all be great. What we're talking, what we're talking about, spirituality. We're talking about this, the quest for truth. We're talking about the thing that has driven humanity since day one. We're talking about something that is at the root of the production of all human culture, the production of all human society, and all social inter interrelations. Uh, that is behind every war in history on one side or on both sides. What is truth? As Pontius Pilate said, right? It's not the question. Is the modern, the modern nihilism, if you were to summarize the modern world, the moment of nihilism that we were in, in one, in three words, in one question, it would be that. What is truth? Pilate to Christ. What is truth? As Famously uttered by David Bowie when he played Pontius Pilate in The Last Temptation of Christ, his most satanic role, Bowie as Pilate in The Last Temptation of Christ is both in that one line, what, what is truth? Both for his performance, for the question, for the role, and for the symbology of Bowie himself, who's like the icon of, of the 20th century, and I mean icon in a sense that he symbolizes uh, essentially 20th century Western consciousness fragmenting into schizoid um, identification with multiple selves, our progress towards the internet, uh, Bowie as the personification of the Warholian idea of image itself having value beyond any substance. You know, Bowie perfected Warhol's formula that only image is important and, and substance can be removed completely, which is largely the, th the thesis statement of our current culture. Bowie as Pilate, what is truth? The voice of Satan, perfect, right? What is true? Our culture asks the question, decides there is no answer, and then leaves us there. And then fetishizes the question itself as the truth. Ask any, any academic, anybody who's been through any type of degree process, what does 100% of certainly, you know, soft academics ask? What is truth? From what, whose perspective is truth perceived? How can prior statements of truth be problematized? How can it be eroded? How can it be broken down? How can it be disintegrated? How can it be atomized and analyzed and analyzed until there is nothing left except the frontier of chaos, the Koranzonic frontier of chaos, 
that Terence McKenna thought something lay beyond. But what is truth? Christ's answer is, I am the way, the truth, and the light. What does he mean by that? Well, as with everything in the New Testament, you can interpret it in many, many different ways. Certainly the most obvious interpretation is that Christ himself, the Messiah, the Redeemer, is the truth and the way, meaning that the worship of Christ, Christianity, as it would become later, is the path, the way, right? That's the most obvious surface level interpretation of it. I am the way, the truth, and the light. What did he mean by that? The most obvious interpretation, of course, is that Christ himself, the blatant uh, historical figure, is himself, the incarnation of the Messiah, the truth made flesh, that he has shown the way that following Christianity is the way to salvation, and that he is the light, meaning that, you know, fiat lux, the light mentioned, you know, let there be light in the beginning of the Bible, that he is divinity uh, extended into, into, into the world. That's the most obvious surface interpretation, the one taken by basically every Christian denomination. What is a deeper interpretation of that? I am the way, the truth, and the light. Here is what I will leave you with. The way. What is the way? The path. The mystic path, the spiritual path. The way. There is a way in which to live. There is a way in which to seek truth. The path itself, it is different for everyone, and yet the same for all of us. The truth. Truth is. Pilate, what is truth? I am the truth. Truth is. How is truth communicated in silence, the voice of the silence? Broadly, truth is. It is a process. Truth is in the process of manifesting. Truth is. The writing on the walls of eternity. Truth is graspable easily by intuition, by extended intuition. How do I put it? We live in the truth. You know, the truth is there at all times, but it cannot be expressed in, you can't express it in language. And I don't mean that in some type of, oh, it's beyond anyone's ability to comprehend. It's just simply when you start talking, you break the, you break the moment. Truth is imminent. It is manifested. It is here all the time. And we are living in relation to it all the time. In a good life, is one that is lived in in accord with what you already know to be true at the soul level, at the deep level, not at the level of speech or language, although perhaps it can be inferred by logic and, and should be. The truth is here. I am the light. What is the light? The light of truth, the light of meaning, the light of divinity. You have lived by all your life, whether you have accepted it or rebelled from it your life has been lived in relation to, that has been on your whole life, and that you die when it goes out. Meaning, I am embodied. It is embodied. It is manifest as me in this moment. As it is embodied in all of us, when we silence the mind long enough, when we immerse ourselves in the truth of existence through whatever way, when we intentionally immerse ourselves in the path, in the truth, in the light, when we immerse ourselves in that imminent moment, the divinity of existence, again, it's like, it's like it becomes, it's, it's almost impossible to talk about, but I hope that you get the sense of what I'm trying to say. You know, it's like the truth is best communicated in silence. The greatest, the greatest saints of the 20th century, Mayor Baba and several others, they didn't speak. <laughs> no podcast, <laughs> you know, no, no, uh, no merchandise line, no tour, no seminars. You know, the greatest saints, they didn't even talk. Mayor Baba, you know, great Sufi saint from the, the, the 1960s, uh, the avatar of the age, you know, communicated in, sometimes by writing on a chalkboard, but usually did not speak at all. Mother Mira is another good one. Is it total, you know, didn't communicate it by gazes, right? I am the way, the truth, and the light. Truth is real. It is perceptible by soul intuition, not by talking to yourself or oh, I just wasted 13 years on a PhD talking about problematizing narratives of this, that, and the other fucking other thing 100 years ago, or to some extent in religious scripture, provided it is read only at the surface level and not 
seen as what it is, which is a signpost pointing to something. But truth is real. Truth is perceptible. So we have our work cut out for us. <laughs> to say that we live in a profoundly meaningless and alienating culture is all too easy. It is all too obvious. To believe that it will change within our lifetimes, highly unlikely. When I was first getting into spirituality, of course, one of the first things you encounter is, oh, there's going to be a great golden age. At that time, it was 2012. Prior to that, oh, the harmonic convergence. And now it's, I don't even know, you know, it's like, oh, there's this mythology that there will be this moment of awakening when everyone wakes up and basically becomes like a chill hippie in the great drum circle at the end of time, whatever the fuck it is. Uh, no, that's not, it, it's, um, this is another delusion. If anything, our level of consciousness is degrading as time goes on. I hate to break it to you. You know, your own, your own life and thinking backwards across generations, parents, grandparents, and so on, depending on how that was for you, um, or, or certainly prior periods of, of history should demonstrate that to you well enough. But of course, like everything else, there is no universal progress or retrogression. We, we live in a vast sea. There's a lot of stuff going on all at once. Things are in the process of changing. Things are simply in the process of changing all the time. If we live in an age of disintegration, chaos, and despair, which is all the more seductive because of all the anesthetics and options of narcotics in all senses of the word that it offers us, ways to numb out from the basic fact of what the fuck this is we're living in, and we can't count on, nor should we count on, any type of mass social change, which of course would simply recapitulate the meaninglessness uh, you know, that is at the core of modern existence immediately, um, even if its founders were sincere. If we can't count on these things, then what do we do? And the answer, the answer that I have to offer is the great work. I mean, the answer that I have is that you have to do it for yourself. And it hasn't been any other way at any other time in history. You know, there, there was no golden age and there will not be one. You are on your own and you always have been and you always will be. In this moment, you must immerse yourself in the profound, sincere, and deep quest for truth. It is enough to begin to immerse yourself in it with everything that you have. Don't wait for the answer or the right path. People have a terrible tendency to hem and haw and wait for the right bus to show up. Just fucking have the intent to get on the bus and jump when you get the chance on the bus, right? The deep, profound, and sincere urge to be immersed in what is true, true spirituality, the quest for truth, by whatever means, strong, sincere aspiration is what moves the gears of, the, of eternity, right? You know, if I, if I can't say anything else, I mean, it's like that I can say with absolute confidence, right? It's on you. Nobody, you can't buy it off the shelf. You know, you can, there's all kinds of helpful things you can get. You can assemble information from here, that, and the other. I try to offer everything that I can, but it's ultimately, it's up to you. But the beauty in that is that when that aspiration is generated, the universe itself, the gears turn and everything comes to your aid. And I mean everything. You are not in an alienated universe. You are not in a meaningless universe. You are in a universe that is waiting for you to rouse from your slumber, to meet its challenge, to live up to the challenge it is offering you, and to play. Faith is to know by the intuitive perception of the soul those things that are real it cannot be seen with the eyes or heard with the ears or touched or inferred logically or proven. Faith is to know with the soul's intuition what is truly true beyond the transitory data of the world. And faith and faith alone can and will move mountains. Okay. Lots of love. Enjoy yourself. It's later than you think. And I will absolutely see you in class. All right. Talk to you soon. Remember, the current prices for Magic.me last until Thanksgiving, at which point they go away. And then stay tuned on Black Friday 
for the brief offer on the mega course. So make sure you catch that window so you get the early bird rate. And I will see you in class.